Sometime in 2024, I'm hoping that folks in the press will be calling me a debut novelist. I predict at least two reviewers or journalists will say I'm a late bloomer. The middle years are a rather unfashionable age for a scribbler to make a fiction debut. Most prizes, grants, and attention are directed squarely at the more fresh-faced, less jaded practitioners of that genre, and this fact of life discourages but doesn't deter me. Especially in a reading and writing culture that increasingly accepts the DIY route as a legitimate road to publication, though, it wouldn't ever be accurate to describe myself as a debut novelist. To claim that would be to discount one of my most impactful works to date, Impactful upon me, anyway, in that it cemented my view of myself as an author. The self-published, 1980 work, More Than a Neighbor. I'm Elaine Casket, and this is Wednesday's Ghost. In the middle of every week, I tell you a story that's true, that's real, and that makes me feel just a little bit vulnerable. This week, a tale of my youthful writing prowess and how it's tripping me up as an adult author. This story was originally told on stage for Mortified and for the Mortified podcast on Father's Day 2018. I'm happy to retell it to you now in this form, more than and less than. Let me tell you a story. I wrote More Than a Neighbor throughout the latter part of 1979, first in longhand on ruled, hole-punched sheets of paper tied together with yarn, then on my classic silent Super Smith Corona. Upon its grand release, it was available in a special edition hardback, which I painstakingly constructed myself under the tutelage of my mother and grandmother, and spiral-bound paperback copies produced by my uncle's print shop, that retailed exclusively at my school and church for the then-exorbitant price of $2. To my immense pride, it was placed in my primary school library. I'd sometimes go to visit it on the shelves, flipping to the back to see how many times it had been checked out, or to peek at the card for it, tucked into the card catalog's long drawers. I didn't have an editor, per se, although my mother proofread and helped me typeset the book, not interfering with the content beyond spelling and grammar corrections. She tells me a story, though, about another time when she meddled more. At the age of 12 or 13, I entered a finish-the-story contest for the Courier-Journal in Louisville, Kentucky. The story was set against the backdrop of the Great Flood of the 1930s, a disaster that devastated the community on both sides of the Ohio River, and my tale was both gripping and historically accurate, having been exhaustively researched using microfiched records at my local library. Before I posted in my submission, my mother rubbed out a paragraph she thought was superfluous. The judges held the typewritten page to the light to read the now faint impressions and opted to restore the paragraph for what proved to be the winning entry splashed across the arts and culture section of the Sunday edition of the paper. You were right. My mother says to me, you knew what you were doing. These moments of maternal validation have proven a blessing and a curse. At the moment, it feels more of a curse. Unaccustomed to editorial input, I bristle, freeze, and panic at my editor's questions about my creative choices. I can't always tell what I'm dealing with psychologically. Narcissistic injury, uncomfortable but reasonable reactions to legitimate differences of opinion, 
or the relentless pricking and hissing of imposter syndrome. In Jeremy Richards's new book, The Accomplished Creative, he traces the history and evolution of imposter syndrome, a term coined in 1978. In that year, the basic outline for More Than a Neighbor was germinating in my eight-year-old brain, but that former iteration of myself, the juvenile author of More Than a Neighbor, would have found it easier to grasp the existential world of a koala than to imagine what imposter syndrome feels like. That girl wrote utterly unselfconsciously, joyful and spontaneous whilst also careful and precise in her decisions, and she was ultimately unconcerned with any opinions other than her own. Every day, my adult self awakes with the same question. How do I balance freedom and ownership of my work with a necessary and sensible metabolization of my editor's comments and pointers? Because, you know, looking back, even more than a neighbor sorely needed an edit from someone with a different vantage point. You see, I thought more than a neighbor was a heartwarming tale of someone who starts afresh in a new city and immediately seeks out close bonds and jolly adventures with the neighbors. The fact that the new arrival was a man in his 20s and that his new best friends were all 12-year-old children did not strike me as unsavory or suspicious. My mother, involved in the typesetting as she was, noticed concerning trajectories in the plot and sometimes queried, with an air of forced nonchalance, whether my main protagonist were based on anyone who lived in our neighborhood. I didn't understand why she kept asking. Ultimately, she left the manuscript as it stood. More Than a Neighbor formed the basis of the first piece I ever performed on a London stage at Leicester Square Theatre for Mortified London. The recording of that night was chosen for the Mortified podcast, the 2018 Father's Day edition, and I'm happy to re-perform it for you here, the original 66 pages condensed to a collection of passages that my parents were perhaps right to be concerned about. The opening pages betray a charming ignorance of the climate of Southern California where we set our scene. Snowballs flew briskly about the houses one wintry day. The door of the new neighbor's house opened, and the man who had moved in the day before came out. He looked very nice, and the children liked him at once. Call me Tom, said Tom. A few days later, he got lonely, so he began to make calls. The first house he went to was Susan and Jim's. He looked at the snow forts and the sled for a long time. He sighed. <sighs> Susan and Jim were upon him like two young bears. Hello there, cried Tom. Come on, let's settle down and talk. The children obediently sat beside him. Where are your mother and father? Tom asked. Let's not talk about them, said Susan quickly. They got killed in a car crash. Oh, said Tom. I see. That uh, coffee looks very good. After tea and talk, Tom said goodbye and walked off whistling. Tom trudged up a snowy drive to Ethel's house. A girl opened the door, but neither one spoke. She stared. Tom stared. After about 15 minutes, Ethel was heard. Oh, hello, Tom. Come in. You haven't met my sister before. This is Goldie. I haven't seen you around the neighborhood, said Goldie, slowly. How old are you? 26, Tom answered. And you? 21, answered Goldie, but 
I'll be 22 next week. Tom felt very glad that he had made a friend almost his age. Before they knew it, everyone was craving for lunch. Luckily, only two plates got broken, only one spoon got bent, three glasses got broken, and there were no spills. Spring came, and with it came warm weather. Tom called all the children's parents. He asked if he could take the children somewhere. Just send them over to my house at 10 a.m., and, oh, just send their swimming suits with them. They were going to Lake Merlin. When they got there, they decided to swim first, because you shouldn't swim until about an hour after eating. Tom proposed that each one show a trick they could do in the water. Tom won, because everyone thought his trick was the best. Tom said to the children, Come into my house. I've got a big surprise for you. The children eagerly followed. Tom called, Buttons! And a little lapdog ran out. Wait till you see your collar, said Tom, laughing like a boy. The collar read, I belong to Tom Harris and his 12 best friends. Oh, Tom, how can we ever thank you? And the children ran over and kissed and hugged Tom, not at all ashamed to show all their love and affection for the man that was so like a father to them all. As their association deepened, Tom proposed to the children that they go into business in a disused shed in his back garden, where they could spend more quality time together. The next morning, he told the children that the surprise was ready. They jumped up and down and hugged and talked. Tom put up a sign saying, The Museum of Underwater Life. Press knob for service. At first, everything was great. The Museum of Underwater Life was a great success, going from strength to strength and providing Tom with the majority of his income. But Tom's attention was starting to drift away from his friends, and it was up to one of them, Ethel, to investigate. During a discussion about swordfish, Tom sat dreamily staring into space with his chin in his hands. Ethel knew something was brewing. She was like a hound dog, keeping trail on the scent of a rabbit. She noticed a new ring on Goldie's finger. Why, Goldie? That's a very pretty ring. Oh, this? I got it from a friend. Later that week, Ethel wanted to get a necklace, so she walked to Kevin's jewelry store. Suddenly, her eyes fell on a sign. Engagement rings, $20 each, guaranteed to last forever. Jewel, in middle. She gasped. The engagement rings were just like the one that Goldie wore. Tom must be the friend. Aside, perhaps the bargain basement nature of this solitaire was connected to the Museum of Underwater Life's only charging 10 cents for admission, which seems in line with the sparse and frankly rather rubbish-sounding range of exhibits. Ethel decided she would ask Goldie about this. Goldie, I went to Kevin's jewelry store and I... You know, don't you? It's true. I am engaged to Tom, but we aren't going to move far away. Tom would miss you all too much. Despite my parents' fears, more than a neighbor was entirely innocent. Tom was above board. He might have been more than a neighbor, but not that much more. At the end of the book, the whole extended clan, linked by friendship rather than blood, gathered to celebrate Christmas. Tom decorated the Museum of Underwater Life with lights. The children and their families flocked to Tom's house. 
To the children, Tom and Goldie actually gave a puppy each. The children laughed and clapped their hands and hugged and danced around Tom and Goldie. The parents were pleased that their children had made such a good friend. And even when the children were grown into adulthood, they never forgot Tom. The end. In my most intense moments of imposter syndrome, I'm in danger of forgetting Tom, forgetting my first novel, forgetting how to do what I was able to do then. But I can't let myself forget how to let my mind range free, how to allow my words to pour forth. I can't let anxiety and avoidance stand in the way of editing my work. The author of More Than a Neighbor had faith that, in the end, it would all come good because she knew to the core of her being that she was simply doing what she was born to do. I'm channeling her today. This has been Wednesday's Ghost with me, Elaine Casket. If you're enjoying this weekly storytelling project, if you really believe in the power of storytelling, please consider becoming a free or paid subscriber on Substack. Paid annual subscribers get extra content and free copies of my books on Kindle, Audible, or in paperback. And of course, it would really help if you would subscribe, review, and recommend wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you'll tune in next week.